Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. Um, I don't know about you, Mark, whether you heard the intro guy there, but he was a little bit weird there. He was going fast and slow. So hopefully this recording will work. Episode 212, Friday, October the 22nd, 2021. And apologies to those pedantic listeners who keep thinking that I'm chopping and changing with the episode numbers and they're not sequential. That's because I stuffed up a couple of times. Um, But I think I'm back on track, Mark. It is definitely episode 212. And it is October the 22nd when this one is coming out and we've had a little bit of a a natter, a bit of a chat, a bit of a chin wag, haven't we, Mark, Um, offline before we started. And I think um, you've struck it rich um, with some fossicking, is that correct? It is precisely true, Brendan. I am... I went to Opleton hunting the um, the the Rufus uh, Rufus grass wren, the Rufus um, emu wren, and the the uh, Opleton grass wren. Did I heard one of them? Didn't see either of them, but I did find a, a piece of the um, the, uh, the 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 gem that gives the town its name, a small piece of opal. And I did take a photograph of it, magnify it many times to make it look like. I had discovered much more than I really had. You've hit the seam, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and yeah, it was. But but it's um, I I said to you, um, you know, being near Winton and Richmond and Hewenden in central Queensland, the so-called dinosaur triangle. Um, uh, there's a lot of fossil fossicking to be had there, a lot of uh, gemstone fossicking, and so it's a a fun place to be. But I I mentioned that to you and. And you sparked up. You you have been doing a bit of fossicking yourself. Yes, and speaking of fossils, they had uh, two extra fossils there, didn't they, when you were visiting <laughs> while you are there? Yes, we had, a, well, I've, I've, I've had a little bit of a play around with a, a new little, a new little, Hobby, I suppose you could call it, isn't it, Mark? Um, so during my little lockdown where I had to be isolated um, and we hired out an Airbnb, as we spoke about last episode or the episode before, in Warrandyte, which is one of the first areas in, or the first area in Melbourne where gold was discovered back in the 1800s, Mark. Um, I did lots of little walks around the the old gold mining sites there, Mark, and it sort of piqued my interest. And I remember when I was young, my brother and I um, cobbled together, this is many, many years ago, a little electronic box and we made our own little metal detector and um, we, we love doing it. And I, so I, I had a little bit of a look online and I went out and bought a little metal detector, Mark, and I spent um, a little bit of time practising in the backyard and I dug up an old, an old fork and a couple of rusty nails and a few spoons and things like that. But I finally managed to head down to the park and for those um, listeners from overseas, um, you know, we have the dubious distinction here in Melbourne, don't we, Mark, has been the most locked down city in the world. Um, we've had the most lockdown days of any city in the world, uh, which will be lifted within, well, by the time, 
this podcast goes to air, um, some of the restrictions will be eased, including our curfew, which is still in force, Mark, I think, from 10pm till 5am at the moment. So I went down to the local park, which was only about 500 metres away from my house, and did a bit of detecting um, with the metal detector around the around the little children's playground. I got up pretty early and went about 6.30 in the morning um, before anybody was there, and um poked around there with the metal detector had, had for an hour or so and had a had little bit of um, fun there. I was getting a bit frustrated. I was getting a, picking up a little bit of tin foil and some, you know, the, a very common thing that metal detectorists detect or find, and that's pull tabs um, from drink cans is, is very common. Um, and then I, I was a little bit downhearted, and then um, I dug up an old crusty 10-cent piece, Mark, um, the old Australian 10-cent piece, and, and then I was hooked from then onwards. I think it was a, not that old, a year 2000 or something, 10-cent piece, and then got another couple of um, coins there, including a 50-cent coin and a little bit of quartz, Mark, that um, beeped a little bit, so I'm not quite sure whether there's a speck of gold in that one or not, but um, I've kept it. But I will keep that 10-cent piece as being the first bit of um, money that I, I found there. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's something that I'll... I will um, continue doing um, because it's a bit of fun, gets me out outdoors. And as I mentioned, it, it, um, I think we're doing a bit of community good there because we pick up a lot of trash as well, especially some pretty sharp metal objects that are buried not very far underneath the, you know, the, the um, bark sort of... Um, how 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 far, Brent? My the they they fascinate me the those devices the the way that you can you were talking yeah. before how you can well, formulate an opinion of what you're digging up before you even yeah like well, that, it's quite interesting yeah that the, the technology has certainly advanced since the 1980s when when I when we um, made one with my my brother um yeah that they, they give off a little beep obviously but they give you a number um which corresponds to sort of the type of metal it is there and you can look up charts based on which metal detector you, you were using and it gives you a pretty good idea on okay that one's going to be a bit of silver that one will be a little bit of jewelry or if you're really lucky if it's a lowish number it might even be a bit of gold um so like a bracelet or you know a, a ring etc um, and how big uh, a shovel do you have to take with, like, how far are you digging? No, well, it, yeah, well, and that's the one thing you're careful about, you know. I mean, where I I dug around, it was just where they had that sort of tan bark, um, um, loose surface for when kids are falling off the little playground equipment. So all you're doing is you're just moving that out of the way because it's loose um, and, um, you know, then you're just putting it back there. Um, if you are digging in in the soil or in in the grass there then um there's sort of a technique you use to to make a plug where you just sort of um um, hinge it um so there's still one side attached and then you're popping it back again so you you need to make sure that you do put put it back so the grass isn't going to die off and you're not going to leave big holes anywhere um because you want to do the right thing and not um make a mess there but de depth wise I, I think the one i've got goes down um to about um 30 centimeters which is wow. reasonably deep yeah um reasonably deep interestingly enough and i've i've started watching lots of little youtube videos of that there's people even live stream they're, they're they're going out with their metal detector down down the beach or you know gold detecting or at an old farmhouse and that there's a lot 
Um, what do you think? Um, because foolishly, I've done the same thing and looked at the fossil ones. I have a firm opinion that a lot of those are faked, that they plant things out in their great reveal and um, and they know they're going to find this chunk of gold. It's going to be dramatic. They're going to find <laughs> this. Do you, what, do you, what do you, with your YouTube videos, what's your read on that? Oh, they no, they just pull up a crusty old coin or something most <laughs> of the time, yeah. Um, the be beach ones are interesting because you have a little beach sand digger um, and, again, it's it's pretty environmentally friendly because you're often picking up sharp stuff that people might slice open their um, their um, foot with um, and it, it, it's just like digging a little, making a little sand castle. You're just digging one little hole in the beach in its sand and then you fill it back in anyway. Um, but it's amazing what they find on the beach and... Um, yeah, you know, depending on where you go, and I think people are, you know, they they work out when to detect on the beach. You know, go to a, a beach that's been really busy during summer and and have a look to see where people are setting up their little beach um, tents and that. Um, and then once the sun goes down or early next morning, you detect along that sort of area, and that's where you'd be dropping your coins out of your pocket or your um, or if it's a surf beach that they've been dumped and their ear earring comes off or their ring comes off, etc. Um, so yeah, they can be quite quite um, valuable. Some of the things and and some interest. All well, the people I've been watching anyway. Some interest in um, you know um, um, finding finding the owner of, of some if they do find a valuable thing. Um, they they most of them the ones I've been watching anyway seem to do the right thing and they they've managed to um reunite you know a, a a gold a gold um ring with with their owners again um not infrequently yeah um, so a bit of fun and um yeah i might might manage to one day get enough money to buy a coffee after i've been out there well um, i have an apology to make to you brendan a very sincere apology i um, undertook to get my coffee mug, socks, uh, iPhone case, and I got out of range before I did. So I haven't been on the Etsy page yes. and done my booking. Um, but I think, um, I think, uh, well, I, I probably it's probably been good that I haven't because uh, there've been crowds of people blocking the why the uh, the the. the Brought the brand the bandwidth and uh, making it very <laughs> yes, difficult to get on. <laughs> yes, so for those who don't know it, yes, good, good. Thank you for pushing me onto that, Mark. Um, the Etsy store, our Etsy store, which will help support us. Um, go to etsy.com and just look for Vet Gurus or or one word, and we've got a number of merchandise items there that you can um, purchase not only functional mark they help support us and that includes things like a drink bottle some hoodies t-shirts um, what else do we have on there mark that um, well I, that, I was going to say that um, I'll to prove that I have placed my order I will model some of the, I know the models that we've paid are <laughs> much better looking than me but just uh, I will uh, I will demonstrate uh, some of the the wonderful Vet Gurus merchandise that we have available. So that's yes. something to look forward to, Brendan. Yes. So we'd um, be very honoured if um, our listeners went over there and uh, 
purchase some things and even more. We feel we'd be very proud if we we had some pictures of our listeners all over the world wearing some Vetguru merchandise or using buying a Vetguru mug, etc. So go to the Etsy shop and have a bit of a look around. Yeah, we should move on, Mark, because I have been rambling on for 10 minutes or so here um i might jump into my um it's a quick news story mark and that's one that we always cover every year and that is the comedy wildlife photography awards and the gallery of the finalists for the 2021 competition is out and gee mark i think they've they've excelled themselves this year they've got so many spectacular photos now have you um jumped across to that um to that um, website and had a bit of a look at the, the the summary of them. I'll send you the link to it now um, if I can hear that beeping. So I think you've got it. Um, so <laughs> cl- click on that link there, Mark, and have a bit of a flick through those. Um, but some spectacular photos here. And um, I'll, I'll point out a couple that I'd, I'd regard as my favourite ones there, Mark. Um, and I'd be interested to see what you think of them and whether you agree um, but my two favourite ones, Mark. Um, once you're on that, is the uh, the the little male. Um, 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 I'm not quite sure what species we've got here. Um, is it a, is <laughs> I know it which little, one you're talking um, about. Um, that's caught himself um, over a little um, a little wire or or rope swing there, and he's he's caught his nether regions. Um, and he looks like he's got a bit of an surprise, surprise um, expression on his face. That's the one, um, one that really stood out for me, Mark. And number twenty six of forty six. I knew exactly which one you were going to have. There you go, number twenty six of forty six. And the other one, oh, let me see. The other one I particularly liked was oh, must be up near the top again. It was. Um, it was. Actually, number two, I really enjoyed. I, I like that snake photo um, there. Um, it, it's it's looking like the snake's sort of laughing or smiling there, but um, it's a very shallow depth of feel, and I think te- technically it's a pretty damn good photo there, Mark. Do you think one – and they are fascinating. Um, the I love the Adeli penguins. The I think it's um, – so maybe number eight, um, and um, and the first one uh, also um, tickles my fancy. I do. I have to admit to a certain ambivalence, though, because um, so much of the f- humour that I get from them is because of the um, the 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 uh, parody of humans. That you know that, that yes. these are animals that you can um, identify a human uh, mannerism or trait. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, that's what I was trying to. Um, yes, no. So the 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 face of that snake, which looks the vine snake from Indonesia, which looks like it's um, it's sort of laughing at you. Yes, um, it's you know as we know just having a yawn and being caught at a particular moment the smiling damselfly yes. who looks just so happy um, the um, chameleon number 21 as well um uh, yes yes no the ha, they are excellent photos so um technically um, excellent yes, photographs yes um so yes there we go so we will we'll, um 
we will see who um, the 2021 winners are. I expect hopefully before the end of 2021, Mark, and we'll we'll report back to let our listeners know which ones. And we'll have a link to these finalists at vetgurus.com for this particular episode. What new story do you have, Mark? I'm returning to our good friend um, from the Queensland Venom Evolution Lab, Associate Professor Brian Fry, who who generally presents us with science that... um, you know, that has a direct and immediate uh, application. You know, there's some new thing about venom that um, that will allow us to maybe, you know, develop a new uh, antibiotic or some new chemical and some new pharmaceutical. But this story um, is much more, well doesn't have a direct impact at all, though it does have a consequence, I think. Um, and this is the story of uh, some tests that were conducted on blue-tongue lizard blood um, exposed to red-bellied black snake venom. Um, and what the scientists at the Venom Laboratory found was that um, largely the blue-tongue lizard blood um, was very, very resistant to the hemolytic effects of red belly black snake venom. Um, so resistant, not perfect, but so resistant that it would require a tremendous amount of venom to have a chance of killing a blue tongue. And of course, um, uh, I, um, I've spent a lot of time in the wild looking at you know trying to get photos of these animals in the wild and i i you know i know that um red belly black snakes avoid anything to do with blue tongues and it's probably has a little bit to do with the fact that their best defense or their best attack um doesn't have any effect on them um so it's a particular serum factor in the blood um, that renders the hemolytic effects of the red belly black venom, um, uh, yeah, um, much less than that tested against other much larger monitor lizards. The monitor lizards are probably protected by their very, very thick skin, um, and it would be unlikely that, uh, except in an emergency, that a red belly would, would have a crack at them. <laughs> yes. They're mainly yes. they're mainly um, interested in frogs as their main prey item, um, but it, yeah, it's just really interesting. But but even though this uh, venom research has no specific, immediate, practical, obvious scientific pathway from it, um, it is important to realise that uh, you know they're very cool snakes that can just shrug off a snake bite. But it also is pretty critical that we understand these things so that. Um, you know, the better we understand how animals interact with each other in the environment is vital to us to for us to ensure that those environments are sustainable and that we can organise all the conservation efforts. So a new bit of information well worth knowing. If you have a red bell if you have a blue tongue that comes in that is showing signs of uh, uh, hemolysis, uh, it probably isn't a red belly black bite. Yes, very interesting little study there, Mark. And yeah, he, d- he, he did, um, yeah, as you mentioned further down in the article, he admitted that unlike other work that the lab does, this research was about confirming a hypothesis and was just cool science rather than a quest for more practical discoveries. 
But for us, and for us, we just think blue tongues are cool, and now they're even cooler. They can shrug off a snake bite. Yeah, so I thought that was quite good. Yes, and that was in the um, one of your favourite journals, there, Mark Toxins. Um, And I know you really always look forward to each edition of Toxins. Hang out for the delivery. Yes, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> so let's jump into and and we we you had a little bit of a segue there. Um, our main topic this week is 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 a broad one, but it's a uh, it's um yeah some fascinating aspects of medicine of varanids, um, which are particular types of lizard species, aren't they, Mark? So do you want to introduce this topic and, and, and have a bit of a chat about um, what do we what do we mean when we talk about varanids? Well, I, I do, Brendan, I do want to introduce them. <laughs> um, it was, a, I know that um, that we talked in our, in our uh, huge staff meetings here at Vet Gurus where we toss up the topics we might talk about. We raised this topic a few months ago and then um, the wonderful Latoya V. Latney um, uh, from America did a rounds, a Vin Arrow rounds on uh, Varanid medicine and surgery uh, about eight weeks ago, and I felt badly gazumped. Um, but um, but I thought, you know what, um, we should celebrate what uh, Latoya's done and add a little bit of an Australian twist to it because we're so lucky here to have. Um, the largest number of um, of varanids, our goannas, um, were probably the the country where they evolved, and then they've spread through Southeast Asia and and uh, um, and Southern Asia and Africa, and um, and they're just very like speaking of blue tongues being very very cool lizards. Uh, the varanids uh, have some very, very interesting metabolic peculiarities which make them very cool lizards as well. And it includes, yeah, the the, the monitor, um, the, the the group of the monitor lizards as well, um, which is probably the most common ones that people um, uh, um, know about. Um, and I was just looking up the... the, the um, the origin of the the word monitor lizard, Mark. Did you hear the? Um, did you know the sort of theories behind that? No, um, let me know. Um, that, were they in classes, and and they were the ones who always wanted to? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far off it. Um, the name may have been suggested by the. This is from Wikipedia. The mate. So who knows if it's right? Um, <laughs> the name may have been suggested by the occasional habit of varanids to stand on their two hind legs and to appear to monitor. Or perhaps from their supposed habit of warning persons of the approach of venomous animals, Mark. What do you think about that? Um, one of them is from Horatio Nelson. Um, the Life of Nelson Revised and Illustrated, 1836, Mark, um, with original anecdotes, etc., <laughs> is the title of that publication. So, um, and the other <laughs> reference is from Robert George Sprackland in 1992. Mark Giant Lizards, TFH Publications. Um, I used to own a few TFH publication works. We all, ev- I think, them, everyone, Mark? everyone loved their tropical fish hobbyist publication. They, they were uh, uh, in a, when we were much younger. A lot of the uh, um, younger members of our profession wouldn't realise the dearth of information on the topics we loved 
um, and TFH Publications really did uh, stick a few books out there that um, piqued my interest when I was a young man. Absolutely, they they um, gee, they they spat out books of all sorts, didn't they? Every every single um, species that they could. But yeah, there, there's some. I think I've still got a fair few of them sat away in my little office at home mark so um yeah varamids goannas monitor lizards and yeah they certainly have some peculiar some interesting features um and we've seen a fair few of them recently mark do you see many of them what sort of species do you see in practice which they're particularly the little guys the uh, um the uh rock monitors the blackhead monitors ackies those ones uh, have the attitude, they have the the yes. personality that, that people really gravitate towards. And this is one of the things I um, regularly talk to my clients about. Um, there are, you know, I'm, I love all reptiles. I love all, um, uh, um, you know, birds and reptiles and wildlife in general. But um, I know that people gravitate towards the animals that are most likely to interact with them. Um, and that's one of the features of varanids that I think is really on the rise. I think that, um, you know, a person who keeps geckos, for example, is probably, um, you know, they probably have a day long day job. And so when they get home at night, it's nice. They're not animals are darting around the enclosure, but they're unlikely to be hugely interactive and they're secretive little delicate um, animals. Um, they're still special, and I don't denigrate um, their 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 um, you know their their part in her petticulture. But I know that the varanids are much much more likely to be uh, actively interactive with their owners, and their attitude, um, their absence, well, not an absence of fear. They have an appropriate fear, but once that fear is uh, gone and they realise that humans are going to supply them with food, they become very uh, um, um, humanistic pets. So I understand why people love them, Brendan. And some of the requirements for these, especially some of the, the larger ones, we can certainly end up with some very big goanna species mark and and we have the odd client who has some of the lace monitors for instance and those sand monitors um don't think i've seen any pet parentes for in, instance but you may have up your way um majority of them that we're seeing i've been seeing a, a fair few of the um the um the ridgetail monitors the um spiny tailed um aki variations so i think they're all the same species aren't they or variations um in the last few weeks actually um with a with a good client of mine um, um requirements for these marks so we can end up with with some of these lizards are relatively small only what up to you know 50 or 100 centimeters or so um, but some of them can get be much bigger than that some of these species so i think um what do we do with housing these, Mark? What's the, what's the requirements for them? And do you keep them inside? Do you keep them outside? Do they need heating? Well, they definitely need heating, Brendan. One of the things about their their sort of, you know, the, one of the their very advanced evolutionary as uh, evolutionarily as far as lizards go, they are probably more closely related to snakes than many of the other lizards, and they um have a very high metabolic rate. They have a very high requirement for an environment, uh, you know, a hot spot, a very high 
preferred body temperature and uh, preferred optimal temperature zone. And so it is critical, absolutely critical, that uh, suitable temperatures are maintained that allow them to maintain their body temperature um, so that they can be active. Um, and there's no doubt they'll get sick if those high temperatures, that high hotspot is not maintained. They need a lot of space too, Brendan. They need um, a lot of uh, uh, um, a large enclosure, even the relatively small ones we talk about, the ackies and whatnot. Um, you know, they are not sluggish animals. They are uh, out and exploring. Um, it's not uncommon. In fact, um, I was talking about uh, visiting Opleton um, earlier, and I was lucky enough to see a yellow-spotted monitor at Opleton, who easily covered in just a few minutes several hundred metres exploring around trees. And, um, and so they need... Um, a lot of stuff to do and places to look for and things to keep them active. Yes, and that leads on to one of the common problems that we're speaking about off-air, Mark. Um, they get fat, don't they? Um, it's easily the most common health issue I see with the Varanids, that um, because they... Porkers. They That's what I call them. They're porkers. They're they end up getting fruit. Yes, they do. They um, they eat. They will eat a lot, and they um, they eat well. And uh, if they don't need to wander around and find their food, if they don't have a reason to be active, um, then they will just sit in one place and uh, and become unbelievably obese. Um, and they will have health consequences that arise from that and all the usual things that you would expect. There are skin conditions that arise from their, uh, set the sedentary nature of these obese animals. Um, there are hepatic lipidosis problems. And it's really one of the things that's been my personal experience is that um, it's so difficult to reverse. Um, it's not something that's going to happen like, you know, oh, we'll just need to rein in that food a little bit and two or three weeks later they'll be all good. It's a, you know, uh, I was talking to you off air about a case with some parenti that uh, I was dealing with and um, those lizards will take three or four years before they're back to normal um, and they will not, you can literally not feed them at all. And they, you know, they're metabolic, they can adjust their metabolic rate while it's very high routinely, when they're carrying that fat, they will use that first and not use much of it um, and take a long time before they burn it off. So um, it's much better to prevent them becoming obese and developing those complications, heart disease, liver disease, um, than it is to try and correct it once it happens. Absolutely. So preventing it, mate, what sort of things do these generally eat in the wild and what sort of products do you recommend or, or, or food items do you recommend for these as pets? Well they're predators and so the smaller ones are predominantly insectivores um, and the large ones are um, carnivorous or probably a little bit more predominantly most people will um, be familiar, most Australians will be familiar with a local um, uh, picnic area on the the southeast part of the country where the goannas will drop in and, and have a go at some um, aged meat. They're usually pretty good on the, the uh, um, 
uh, having a go at uh, things that have been a little bit left for a little bit of time. So um, uh, a carnivorous diet. And I think it's really important there. One of the things, the smaller species that are insectivorous, um, it's critically important to, um, they're one of the species where you need to be aware that um, insect larvae, um, mealworms, um, the, there are different uh, levels of fat and levels of protein and uh, minerals in the different species of insect. And you need not to depend just on a single source. You need to uh, plan very well and make sure that you've got a wide variety of um, insects and supplementary food for the lizards to eat, or they will um, develop complications from that diet. So funnily enough, it's not much different from what we recommend with all the other species, let alone reptiles there, Mark. Um, and yet we unfortunately do have clients that bring these animals in and they're feeding them everything from, you know, fatty um, um, mince um, and to um, all sorts of sort of homemade um, meat sort of products um, to even some of those um uh, sausage meats, you know, um, of um, people can feed, which are really fatty as well. Um, and not only the wrong things, but certainly way too often and feeding them, you know, trying to off, get them to feed every day and they're not exercising and they don't have those big enclosures that you mentioned. So they just sit in there eating and eating and getting bored and eating and getting very fat and then we end up with those hepatic lipidosis cases like you mentioned there Mark um, and for those of listeners who don't see many reptiles just remembering that we don't get typically or at all um, subcutaneous fat in these so they're intrasolomic fat with these animals so the client may not notice that their animal is has become obese and it still amazes me Mark when we open up um, some reptiles and we see the internal fat pads in them. It's they're very efficient at storing fat, aren't they as well? And it is the these uh, varanids, just like our bearded dragons, have those uh, fat bodies in their abdomen. They use them as a energy store and as a an agent to assist in thermoregulation. But they also do place um, fat, excess fat, in around the. The, um, the tail and up over the hips. Um, but once they start to do, once you notice the fat building up in those areas, they're already morbidly obese. Um, they're in trouble already. And so I, I agree with you. I think, um, I think, you know, we've done this before, Brendan, where I've, uh, bemoaned the internet, bemoaned the webs. Um, that if many of the people who keep these animals will look on fora where they, uh, talk to other people who own them who those other people show photos of their lizards who are pretty porked up and um, and obviously they don't immediately show problems of disease but they eventually do in any case once they're obese and so people think that's a normal thing those photos on forums which um uh, um, make the, the which normalise obesity and goannas. They're a crime, and um, and yeah, I just I hope us standing on the the uh, the our soapbox and and uh, shouting it out to the people that listen to us on the podcast at least gets it out there that these lizards need to be fed not often. They need to be exercised excessively 
um, and uh, they need to be muscular and lean, just like you, Brendan. <laughs> what fed excessively? <laughs> so we'll move on from diet to, and you've sort of mentioned it, temperature there, Mark. So what sort of hotspots do you recommend in the enclosure again for these? Oh, we've got to get temperatures well up into the 40s. And where we were, interestingly enough, where we were at Opleton, um, the temperature topped 45 a couple of times and the lizards were um, really active. It wasn't like overwhelming them. Um, there were several monitor lizards stalking around and looking for prey at those temperatures. So they need that, um, you know, uh, 45, 40, 40 plus degrees at least and approaching 45 in the hotspot. Yes. What about substrate? They like sort of, where do they hang out, Mark? down the bottom, up on the branch, everywhere? Well, there's, there's different species. And, and interestingly enough, they've evolved to, um, to enjoy, you know, the Merton's water monitor um, is a, a significantly aquatic species. Um, a lot of them live in the desert. Um, they're arboreal, um, the, the, uh, the green, the, the green goanna, the green monitor, um, there are a number of arboreal species through northern Queensland, Papua New Guinea and uh, Southeast Asia. I think the key thing here, Brendan, is that I know a lot of my clients have desert species and they love whacking them in, in great looking enclosures with desert sand and there's a fairly good market in bagging up the red stuff and um, selling it at exorbitant prices. I don't think that's good enough. I don't think those substrates... Um, I think they're um, they're not critical to the lizard's well-being, and I think um, because they uh, even in expansive enclosures they move they can't move around as much as they would in the wild. You need to be fastidiously careful with the cleanliness of the enclosure and the likelihood of ingestion of substrate. So um, they're one of the species I think that you have to be very careful about uh, the type of stuff you use in, a in an enclosure. And I'd, as much as I love the, the great red sands myself, um, I wouldn't be using them in these enclosures. Yes, and I think it's not far off analogies very similar to bitter dragons they're often sold and we're from breeders as some breeders as well as some pet shops with the sand mark the red desert sand that um, they promote as the best substrate for them and and I, I think it's exactly the same process with them and that they shouldn't really be kept on that because um, we end up with problems with them um, so what else do we need to do husbandry-wise, Mark, if we just um, pick and choose a few of the most important things? We've spoken about temperatures, we've spoken a little bit about substrate, and we've spoken also a little bit about diet. Anything else that sticks out for you with them, that enclosure? What about humidity? What sort of humidity would you recommend? I reckon the, the um, relatively low humidity is a generally good thing. You don't want them... It is one of the things, because there are, uh, many of them are desert species and people will run the enclosures at, you know, close to zero humidity, that's not a good thing. They do need, you know, between 20 and 45% um, humidity. They will become dehydrated um, and they won't necessarily show the signs. They will cope with a much greater degree of dehydration and behave normally than many of our other species. And so um, I would not counsel absolute uh, 
um, dryness and I'd make sure they have water and um, and uh, and that the humidity and the enclosure <laughs> there's a party going on sorry about that Mark um, for some reason the TV in the background decided to turn on by itself and um, luckily it wasn't playing anything too um, disturbing. Um, so, yes. So humidity, Mark, yes. Um, I, I just am always cautious about humidity to make sure that um, it, it's not held at zero because, as, as I was saying, <laughs> when you put the balls on, um, was that uh, um, they do become dehydrated and they will look normal for a long time and develop kidney problems if uh, if they don't have access to water or if they don't have appropriate humidity levels. The other thing that's interesting, there's a couple of other quick points I wanted to make, Brendan. The first one was um, that um, don't try and anaesthetise them with a mask. Um, they have this big gula fold, the pharyngeal fold, um, and they use that to pump up their, um, their complex respiratory system. Um, but it does mean that you can ventilate um, via a mask uh, going up for quite a long time and not get any uh, anaesthetic gas into its lungs. So um, whacking a dose of injectable stuff into them and then intubating them is the way to deal with anaesthesia. And speaking of um, whacking an a in, intravenous dose of uh, anaesthetic agent, I think one of the things that you need to be very careful, even with relatively little Ackies is that you don't underestimate how much damage they can do, even the ones that are really tame. I know of a reptile demonstrator in Sydney who had a very large um, female lace monitor, had her for many years. Um, she was a relaxed lizard around people, um, but he had fed his snakes and had the scent of, um, of uh, uh, rodents on his hand she bit him and her teeth like all those of all uh, monitor lizards um, have serrations on the edges of serrations like bread knives and they open you up effortlessly and um, they slice in through skin through subcutaneous tissue and right through um, tendons and whatnot with F, just with bare amounts of traction. So handling these lizards, do never. I'm always saying to people, do not take them for granted. They may appear to be humanized. They may appear to be comfortable around humans, but they can do immense damage very, very, very quickly, Brendan. Yes, and quickly. Um, and as in they can be very quick um, to move as well. And I think they um, think that, most species of these um, varanids would have some form of type of venom, don't they, Mark, um, in their in their system or in their mouth or possess some um, venom glands that, that may or may not have various um, toxicity. I know that um, there's been significant work done on the Komodo dragon and our, even um, our good friend, Dr. Associate Professor Brian Fry, has done some work on some of the Australian species and they do have very primitive versions of, uh, of toxins in their salivary glands and it's no big surprise. They're an evolutionary step between lizards and snakes and so it's hardly a surprise that uh, some of those enzymes in the saliva are likely to be more dangerous um, than some of the others. So 
Um, the other thing that um, we were going to touch on is sex identification. <laughs> you always come back to the same topic every time I talk to you, Brendan. Um, yes, the, the, it's a common thing for veterinarians who deal with clients who own these lizards, particularly the ones who want to breed them, to be asked to um, uh, to identify the sex. And there are there is a, a number of published lists, particularly Australian species. Um, these lizards have, uh, as all reptiles, hemipenes, and the females have much, much smaller hemiclitori. And um, in the males, the, there is a bone in many species um, that uh, that supports um, the the uh, intramissive organ, the the hemipenes, the hemibacula, and that's radiographically evident in the adults. And so um, there are tables. I know that um, in the uh, the August Reptile Medicine and Surgery. There's a table that lists the species that have a, have a hemibacula, um, and you can identify them radiographically and provide a fairly confident um, uh, sex identifications for breeding purposes. But I do recommend just having a look at that list so you don't, you know, if it's not one of the species that have osseous hemibacula, um, you obviously can't tell. The other trick is that when they're young, um, you can use a relatively, one of the bright lights, um, uh, a, a, um, what are the, the, um, the lights that um, the birds Just an use. LED, a focal. Yeah, LED, anything bright, yeah. bright focal light. Yeah. Um, put it to the side of the tail in the shadow of the hemibacula. Or even an endoscope. Um, light, yeah. You yep. can use Mark um, was one of the thicker um, rigid endoscopes with a halogen or a, 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 a xenon light on it. And there's some nice photographs of um, that being done and demonstrating the shadow that the developing hemibacula will uh, will show, um, and and it becomes relatively easy to be confident about the sex of individual lizards of individual species. Yes. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? A bit of a challenge compared with um, some of the other reptile species that it's a lot easier to detect or determine the sex, or the sexual orientation of that individual. Um, we haven't covered any diseases of these varanids, Mark, or, or why we tend to see them in, in our practices apart from um, the obesity problems. That this, we is, this, is a weekly, this is a weekly problem, Brendan. Every week <laughs> you tell me that I have to be quick and punchy and we need to be out of here, that you know that you've done your research, the podca podcasts that go for 22 minutes are the most popular ones, and you push me to get through everything in 22 minutes so we can be in that zone, and inevitably we go for 50, 45, 50, 55 minutes, and we haven't covered all the topics, so we'll just have to leave diseases... Um, to part, part two, two. <laughs> part two, which we'll cover sometime within the next hundred episodes, I promise. And I think with that, Mark, we better get out there. And uh, Mr. Outro is here and we will talk to you all next week. And don't forget to visit our store at etsy.com. We'll have a link to it at vetgurus.com. Just search for the Vet Gurus shop and look at all the wonderful merch you can buy. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.